My name is Zach Carrera. I am one of the pastors here at church, um, the Next Gen Pastor, so pastor of youth and children. Um, again, it's great to see you all. If you are new or visiting, welcome. Uh, we actually started a new sermon series about two weeks ago now uh, called We Believe, where we're looking at the Apostles' Creed and how it gives us this clarity as to what it means when we say, I'm a follower of Jesus. But it also gives us this unity, right? This unity across uh, languages, peoples, denominations, time, space, uh, that we all confess this same belief. And then it also gives us, right, this story that shapes us, as Dan has laid out, how it forms us into this uh, a certain way of living, a certain way of life because of who we are in Christ. So if Dan, the last couple weeks, looked at um, the Father, God, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, this week we're going to start looking at Jesus Christ. And we'll do that for the next three or four weeks. But the specific lines of the creeds that we'll be getting into um, today is saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, as Dan has mentioned, we're not preaching that text. We're not preaching the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but we're going to be grounding ourselves in Scripture to partly see where does this faith, this unity of faith come from? Where does this creed come from? And so for today, I've chosen Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. That's page 1,000 um, in the uh, Pew Bible, if you wanted to open that up to there. Um, and of course, while you're training there, I want to start with a little story. Um, I am one of those people that has an Instagram account but doesn't post really ever. For anyone who follows me, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I do have an Instagram account, fit in that, I guess, that age range of people who have that. Um, and on that account, I mean, I follow my friends, of course, musicians, encouraging things, or... Um, just neat, neat, of course, posts and reels that come up. And one of those ones, if you guys have an Instagram, um, you might know there's one called the Good News Movement, where they post multiple, uh, usually reels a day, of good things happening around the world, because we don't often uh, see that, right? And one of the ones, if you follow them or you know them, they had a post this past week of a little boy who was at a fire station. Now, this boy was probably five or six, uh, and he goes to the fire station. You can see he has like a walking stick, so he's blind. And this firefighter who was, goes up to him goes down to be on this boy's level, right? So he's on his knees. He's just sitting there patiently. And the kid, you know, you can see him touching the firefighter's mask and then the oxygen. And then he, you can see him touch his shoulders. And then he walks around the back and he's feeling the oxygen tank. And this whole time, the firefighter is describing to him what he's touching. Right? He's like, yeah, this is my intercom system so I can talk to people. And what's so beautiful about it, right, is that, of course, someone who are, you know, being blind, he had read about firefighters before. I'm sure his parents had described to him uh, to the best of their ability uh, what a firefighter was like, what he did, what he looked like, what he wore. But at this moment, when the firefighter is able to come down to his level and to sit there with him, he's getting a more clearer, truer, better, objective vision of just who a firefighter is and what he does. And of course, that's actually what we see happening in Jesus Christ. When we say, I believe in Jesus Christ's only Son, our Lord, right? We're getting this image of a God who is not just distant, but one who has come down to us and given, given us this more objective, clear vision of just who our God is. And so we're going to be looking at that now as we read uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and uh, going through our creed. So let me go ahead and read God's word here. The word of the Lord from Hebrews 1 it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right. And after making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray. Uh, dear God, thank you that you are not a God who hides yourself, Lord, uh, but you are a God who reveals yourself, uh, not only um, through your spoken word by the prophets, but as this text says, you have revealed yourself through your son, uh, Jesus Christ, who we profess, who we believe, who we trust in. Um, God, may you um, implant this word into our hearts. May we uh, hear it in such a way that we respond in faith and that we respond in a holy living and do that work through your Holy Spirit this morning. I just pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So I actually like the way one commentator put these verses. When he, he read these first three or four verses of Hebrews and he said, what we see here is the eternal son, the incarnate son, and the exalted son. And I was like, man, that's perfect. That's like what we're talking about in our creed. So we're just going to be actually looking at the first two points of that. We're not really going to get into his exaltation as we'll kind of get more of that um, through the next few weeks looking at Jesus. But I want to think of it in this way, that we can follow Jesus because he's the eternal son of God. And secondly, that we can follow Jesus because he's the incarnate son of God. And I think that'll help us to confess more confidently, hopefully, as we walk away today, that yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, what these verses in Hebrews start to get at, what our creed starts to get at in their opening lines, is that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. And we're really going to be looking at that throughout the day today. Uh, but it's not that Jesus was half God, half man. It's not that Jesus was God and decided, okay, I'm not going to be God anymore. I'm only going to be a man. Nor is it that Jesus was a man and he was so awesome and perfect that he became God and that we should be just like that. No, the mystery of the gospel is that Jesus Christ was the eternal son of God, 100% God, but he also came down, he condescended, he came to our level to be with us and was fully man. So let's look at this first point, which is the fact that we can follow Jesus because he's the eternal son of God. Now, if you look at verses uh, 2 and 3 in Hebrews, there's at least five descriptions that describe the son as basically God. Right, the first one, it says he's the heir of all things. That means all things, both heavenly and earthly, he is the heir. Now, if you were to go back and read Ephesians 1 yourself, maybe later, you'll see that that's kind of fleshed out more. But then secondly, it's also through him, through the Son, through Jesus, that he created the world. And we know scripture is clear that only God can create the world. We see that in Genesis 1. We see that in a number of Psalms. We see that in John 1, a Colossians 1. If you've been a part of our men and women's Bible study, uh, the women looked at that last week. The men will be looking at those verses this week, right? Only God can create. Thirdly, it describes Jesus as the, exact, or the radiance of the glory of God. Now, the Greek there is basically saying it's not a reflection of God's glory, it's actually the glory is coming from his very essence. It's who he is, right? And now God can shine his glory on us. We can reflect his glory. That's often how they describe Moses. But for someone to have God's glory actually coming from who he is, that can only be God. And then fifthly in these verses in verse three, or fourthly, sorry, in verse three, it talks about Jesus being the exact imprint of his nature. That's not saying he's kind of like God. They're trying to get at 
this mysterious reality that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And Dan actually said this last week, right? In John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. He is the exact representation. He is God. And then lastly, it describes Jesus in verse 3 as upholding the world by the power of his word. So all of these are eternal divine qualities, right? Only God can possess the universe. Only God can create the universe. Only God can uphold the universe. So when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, we're saying we believe that Jesus eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity. And that's elsewhere, right? There's this link here in these, this creed and our verses and other passages in the New Testament that are immediately link Jesus as a son of God. Mark 1 opens up with this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of God. Right? John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And it goes on to explain how Jesus was the word. Um, again, John 1, Colossians 1, 1 John, Romans 1, they all link Jesus to being God's son. Now, why does that matter? Why do we even sit here wanting to fully grasp this reality that Jesus was the eternal son of God? Well, I think one of the reasons, at least, is because it gives him authority, right? It means that, okay, if you are God, then what you say matter. What you did matters, right? We should pay attention to him because he actually is God. You all might be really familiar with the popular argument uh, laid out by, C- or it was popularized by C.S. Lewis, even though he wasn't the first one to say it, is that Jesus either had to be a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. And if you don't know anything about C.S. Lewis, remember he was an atheist. He was a professor at Oxford and then Cambridge. He came to faith through J.R.R. Tolkien. And he writes this argument out this way in Mere Christianity. I like the way he says it. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people most often say about Jesus. Namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him to be God. That's the one thing we can't say, because a man who said the things that Jesus said is either a lunatic, because he actually believes he's God and he's not, or he's the devil, a liar, because he's intentionally deceiving us to believe us that he's God. And then he he goes on to say, he says, now it seems to me pretty obvious that he wasn't a lunatic or a liar. And so consequently, no matter how strange, no matter how unlikely, no matter how terrifying that is for for my life, I have to accept the view that he was who he says he was, God. And if that's the case, then we can follow, I'd add that we can follow him. Okay, Jesus really is who he says he was, the eternal son of God. Well, then I can follow him because he has the power and authority to be my Lord. When I say I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, he has that power and authority. Now, of course, it can be dangerous, though. We want to be careful. We don't want to follow anyone just because they have power and authority. And we've seen how that can be abused. So it's important uh, to not only follow someone because of their status of power and authority, but also based on their character. And so that starts to get me into the second point here. I think it's interesting that we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, because by using the name Jesus, we're already getting at a second thing that we say we believe. So to use the name Jesus, what we're saying is that the son of God was not distant, unknowable, vague, foggy, just distant orb, right? By saying the word Jesus, we're saying, I know him. This was a person who lived 2,000 years ago, who had friendships. 
He felt things. He experienced joys and sorrows. He lived in space and time. So in other words, we can follow Jesus not only because he's the eternal son of God, but also we can follow him because he's the incarnate son of God. I think, look, think back to, uh, remember that story of the firefighter at the beginning, right, in Instagram? When the firefighter stoops down and he's with the boy, no one has to explain what's happening there and that it's a loving act in the sense that I didn't have to read the description on Instagram and say, oh, he's being a loving firefighter. Okay, now I get it, right? That is a universal image of love for someone with that, you know, essentially being higher up or ranked, coming down to be with this boy. It's, a, it's an essence of a humility and love. And I think um, probably a lot of people in this room have done this with either your own kids or your friend's kids. I know, uh, for example, I, I love doing this with my sons, but even uh, at CG this past Friday, it was awesome because we were playing with our kids, but then the people in our CG came down to the rug to play with our kids. And it was an awesome respite because then Annie and I could get dinner. But it was so act, such an act, a loving act of coming down to be with them. Now, this idea of the incarnation, right, God coming down, the word being made flesh, it's hard to overstate how important it is. Some uh, theologians will say, and I would agree, that really our whole faith hinges on this reality. So this kind of, almost to the side, it's getting into this idea of the words of our creed, I, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So as we're talking about the eternal son become the incarnate son, I want to take us back to Matthew 1. Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and read that for you all. Um, and uh, we're going to see kind of where the, these aspects of our creed come from. And we'll, we'll connect it uh, to Hebrews here. But it says this in he, uh, Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Christ. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but did, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So this passage clearly shows for us, right? Why do we say Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? This is laid out for us in Matthew, verse 18, verse 20, verse 23, right? Verse 25 shows that Joseph did not know his wife until he had given birth or she had given birth to Jesus. But the question I think this is, is why does this matter, right? Why does Matthew and Luke take the time to lay out the birth narrative? And then why do we even include it in our creed? I mean, could we have said, I believe in Jesus Christ's only son, our Lord, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, so on and so forth. That seems legitimate, but why was it so important that these lines, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the Virgin Mary, was involved in are in a part of our creed. Well, Matthew 1 verse 21 gets at this, and it's also where we see in Hebrews 1 verse 3. So I'm going to reread Matthew 21, or Matthew 1 verse 21 real quick. It says, she will bear a son, this is the angel speaking to Joseph, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. 
So the birth of Jesus cannot be separated from the death of Jesus. These things are inextricably linked. And we see that getting at also in Hebrews chapter 1, right? In verse 3, it says, after making purification for sins. They're alluding to Jesus's humanity in this aspect. And the summary of all that is that redemption and uh, restoration of all things is not possible without Jesus being fully God and fully man. That's the short answer of it. So let's just talk about it for a second. Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God, means that number one, he's infinite. So he can pay the infinite price of sins. Number two, again, being infinite, he can save anyone. Number three, being God, he's perfect, holy, just, blameless. And the Hebrew writer actually talks about this later in Hebrews chapter 8. This is how the Hebrew writer describes it. He says, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest that was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. See, if Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit and he wasn't fully God, then we just have a finite human being who could not actually pay the price for our sins. However, he was born of the Virgin Mary, right? So he's fully human. Why is that important? Well, the only way to pay for our sins is for people, humanity, to be in their place to pay for their sins. Hebrews again talks about it. It says, the blood of goats and lambs, the blood of animals, nothing other than humanity can pay the price of sins for humanity. So Jesus had to be 100% man in order to receive the punishment for our sins. Again, the Hebrew writer talks about it in chapter 2. Here are these verses. It says, Since therefore the children, so that's us, the church, or anyone who professes their faith in Christ, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And he goes on to say, He, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he could become a faith, merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or in other words, to cleanse us. So Jesus has to be fully God and fully man to be our mediator. Now we've been doing a, using a lot of big language up here trying to describe this mystery, fully God, fully man. And so I just want to take a, a little bit to try and paint this picture as we move towards uh, the conclusion. And it's this, right? We see in Hebrews 1, and we saw at the beginning of our creed, that God made things good. It says that through Jesus, he created the world. And there's a lot of good things in the world. That's what the good news movement shows on Instagram every day, multiple times. There's friendships, there's love, there's sacrifice, there's beautiful creation, there's colors. But we also recognize the world's not perfect. Sometimes we mess up unintentionally. Sometimes we mess up intentionally. Sometimes we mess up in big ways. Sometimes we mess up in small ways. But regardless, because God is infinite, this is what the Bible calls sin. It not only breaks our relationship, with one another, but it breaks our relationship with him. And we can't cross that divide. So instead, Jesus comes down to us. The eternal son of God becomes the incarnate son of God to come down to our level and to work on our behalf to save us from our own sin. Right? Philippians 2 puts it this way. He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God to something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient 
even obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. So what happened at the cross? Well, it's easy if you've grown up in the church for this to go over our head, right? Because we hear it every Sunday. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven. We want to let this sink in, right? Hebrews 1 talks about it, the purification of sin. Matthew 1 talks about it. Jesus saved us from our sin. Well, there's one speaker who actually sat in this, and he was describing uh, the profound effect that the eternal Son of God was the incarnate Son and what he went through. And this was just describing Jesus' humanity, uh, not the, the spiritual dimension of it, but I like how he said it. He said, There was no death more painful than crucifixion, slow agonizing death of suffocation, dehydration, exposure, and you're dealing with the agony of knowing that all that pain's coming. And you're mocked, spit on, and beaten. And one of your best friends is the one who betrayed you into that. And your own people, the ones that actually you created, are the ones that turned against you. And they're led by a ruler who even doubts truth. And you're a victim of the Roman Empire. And you're completely innocent. And everybody knows it. And they decide to release a person who they know to be a murderer and an insurrectionist in place of you. And that's, again, just the humanity aspect of it. But from a spiritual perspective, you have this holy, perfect, eternal, second person of the Trinity who is meant to be infinitely separate from sin, sits on the cross, and takes every sin and judgment and punishment upon himself. I mean, just think about some of the stuff that you've probably seen in the news the past two, three, four weeks, right? The violence, the abuses, and all the sins that we aren't reported in the news, right? Across all time and space, the judgment that should have been for those were placed on the second person of the Trinity. And then in some mystery, the Father turns away from the second person of the, right? The God the Father turns away from God the Son as he hangs on the cross to where Jesus in some sense experiences hell, if I can say it that way. I mean, it's, it's so hard to talk about these. I don't want to be like say something heretical, right? But it's just mind-blowing what happens at the cross. And so to summarize that, this one theologian, Christopher West, said it this way, Jesus, as the incarnate Son, shows us who God is, that he never abandoned us. He made flesh, then became flesh to redeem flesh so that we could be one flesh with him and experience the eternal bliss, fellowship, communion of love between the Trinity. This is our Lord. He is the eternal Son of God who has the authority to be our Lord, but his character at the you know, his incarnation coming down to us, dying on the cross for us, shows us his character that we would want him to be our Lord. So that just leaves us with this last question, which is how do we respond to this, right? How does this beautiful story actually form us and shape us and send us out? Well, chapters 10 through 13 of Hebrews are all application. So I'm pulling these applications just from chapter 10, but I encourage you to go, go read the rest of them. And I thought they were so poignant to really the sermon series that we're doing. And the first thing that the Hebrew writer says is to draw near to God. We can draw near to, with confidence uh, because of Christ, what he has done in his flesh. Now, how many of us in here are carrying any ounce of like guilt or shame? Maybe we keep God a little bit out of a distance because we think he um, is just almost had it with us, right? That it's like, okay, I'll accept you because you said you believe in me, but I really don't want to. That's not the image of the God we have. It's a God that draws near to us because he wants that relationship, and we can draw near to him. He's the one that leaves the 99 to save the one that went astray. 
it's, um, in Luke, it says that there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than if 99 righteous people said they don't need to repent. Right? Go to Jesus. Talk to him. Read his words. Sit in silence before him. Let him speak to you. Now, for some of us, though, when we hear draw near, there's the encouragement aspect of like, yes, you can. But then for some of us, some of us I want to challenge you to do that. Right? Maybe we keep God at a distance because you love that he's your savior. You don't love that he's your Lord. You don't want him to control every aspect of your life. But I don't want anyone in here to hear the words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. And this whole time you thought you had a relationship with him. But actually draw near to him. He is there with open arms. Okay, the second one, second application from Hebrews 10. He says, and I love this, hold fast to the confession. I'm like, oh, we're doing a confession of creed, right? But I love how he says, hold fast to the confession of our hope. So we're not just assenting to a cognitive like, I believe these words are true statements. They actually hold this essence of reality that, yeah, the eternal son of God did become the incarnate son of God, and he saved me, and I will get to live with them forever. There's a real hope that we have to that. And that gives us freedom to love others. I don't have to prove myself. I don't need to receive other people's love. I don't need to have the best grades in class. I don't need to work my way up the ladder of work to earn worth. I mean, if that happens, cool. But we don't have to use that or follow that to get our value because we've already received that from the hope that we have in, our, in the sun. We can love others freely. And then lastly, Another application in Hebrews 10, um, it says that we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, but encouraging one another. And I would say this is gospel living, right? This is what Christ did for us. He was sent out. He came down to us, lived a holy life of love, compassion, one of servanthood and obedience to the point of dying for us so that we can are called to go out to love others, to encourage one another. Notice it's not a singular solo thing, but it's encouraging one another. And that's actually even part of the vision for CGs, right? That we're going out to these different neighborhoods. We have a gospel community encouraging one another to love and good works, to open our doors uh, to our neighbors, to welcome them in, and to be a testimony, just as Jesus was a testimony to who he was, that our lives would be a testimony to what we believe. This is the eternal fellowship that we have in the eternal son of God, who's become the incarnate son of God to us, for us. And so I pray that all of us would be able to confess this with confidence today as we go out and forevermore as uh, for whatever else the Lord has before us. But let me go ahead and pray and we will go um, to communion. Dear Lord God, thank you that you are a God again, that you don't hide yourself, Lord. You are a God who reveals yourself. You reveals yourself through your word spoken by the prophets, as you said in this text. You revealed yourself through the word of your son, but even becoming incarnate for us, that you could die for us and give us a clearer, more objective, um, concrete reality of just your lordship and your character. May we submit and uh, profess uh, this truth with you, Lord. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.